Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to, to Psalm 15, that's what we're going to be looking at today. Psalm 15. And Lord willing, after today, we're actually going to begin studying the book of Galatians. And I think this psalm is a great preparation for us before we head into the book of Galatians. And hopefully by the end of the sermon and heading into next week, you'll see why it's good preparation. So let me, let me read this psalm for us again. Psalm 15, it's a psalm of David. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. I wanted to start out by asking you, what do you think is the most important question you could possibly ask? What's the most important question do you think that you could possibly ask? For David, the question that he asks in verse 1 of this psalm might be the most important one that he could think of. And there's, as I was studying this passage and, and reading other commentators, they, they referred back to an incident in David's life. And we read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So why don't you turn back there? 2 Samuel chapter 6. This chapter recounts for us an incident in David's life where this question may have first occurred to David, or at least where this question may have loomed in his mind larger than ever before. 2 Samuel chapter 6 records for us what happened when David decided to move the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of Yahweh, to Jerusalem, which is where he had taken up residence. He wanted to move the Ark to the same place where he was living. And if you're not familiar with it, the Ark of the Lord was a gold-plated box, and on the lid there were mounted two angelic figures called cherubim, and their wings were outstretched over the lid of that gold box. And this box, the Ark, contained the Ten Commandments, and it symbolized the very presence of God himself. God is said to be the one enthroned above the cherubim. You know, that's the people looked to the ark as where God was among his people. And the Israelites would carry that ark with them into battle because they wanted God to be with them as they fought their enemies, to fight for them. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we read this in verses 1 to 2. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord, the very name of Yahweh of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. So we see here that David is taking this ark, which symbolizes the presence of God, this ark which is called by the name of God and he's deciding to move the ark and he's transporting it verse 3 on a new ox-drawn cart to the city where he lives he's transporting it to Jerusalem and as we see the method by which he was transporting this ark if you're familiar with with the Old Testament law you discover in carefully reading it that he was not transporting it the way the law of God told him he was to transport it. In the law of God, specifically the books of Exodus and Numbers, we find that the ark of God was not to be touched. Man, sinful man, was not to lay his hand upon the ark. Nor was the ark to be transported in any other way than on poles that, that rested on the shoulders of a certain family of the tribe of Levi, called the Kohathites. So how do you move the ark without touching it? 
you put it on poles and you have men put those poles on their shoulders and and walk it to where it needs to go. But here we see David, verse 3, placing the ark of God on a new cart and having it be pulled along by oxen. And as they go along, verse 5 of this chapter tells us that they're celebrating. You know, David is very happy to have the ark of God come to where he's living. And they're, they're celebrating. There's all of this music and everything going on. But then read verses 6 and 7. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. That's not, you're not supposed to touch it. Verse 7, And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. Now, what do you think happened to all the music and the dancing once that happened? It's like a record scratch moment, right? It just, everything stops. Everything stops. That's what happens when you encounter the holiness of God. It just stops you in your tracks. Now look at verses 9 through 11, how David responds to this this heart-stopping moment. Verse 9, so David was afraid of the Lord that day. And notice what he says. He said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? In other words, how can I live in the same place where the presence of God is going to be? Because that's what he was doing. He was taking the ark to Jerusalem to be with him where he was, the same hill that he was living on. And now he's questioning how that can be. How can that be possible? Verse 10, And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So for three months, the ark of God is just kind of set aside because David is afraid to bring it to where he is. And for those three months, I would imagine that David spent a lot of time asking God the kinds of questions that we see him asking at the beginning of Psalm 15. Because when you come to understand just how holy God is and just how sinful you are, that's the kind of thing you start asking. And that is the kind of question that we each need to ask ourselves. So let's, let's look at what this question is, this all-important question. Psalm 15, verse 1. The question, who may dwell in God's presence? David asks, O Lord, who may abide or sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? David here asks two questions, but it's really the same question asked two different ways. He first asks, who may abide or who may sojourn in the Lord's tent, in Yahweh's tent? That word for tent is a reference to the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the portable worship center. It was a big tent. It would get pitched and the ark of God would be placed inside of it. That was where God would meet with his people. And in David's day, the ark still resided in that tent, in a tabernacle for it. It wasn't until David's son Solomon became king that a more permanent structure called the temple would be built and the ark of God placed inside of that. In the second question, David asks, who may dwell on God's holy hill or his holy mountain? What do you think that's a reference to? Mount Zion, right? To Jerusalem. Mount Zion, Jerusalem, that was the place that God had set apart where he chose to cause his name to dwell forever. The place where the temple of God would be built. And that's where David was moving the ark to, right? God's tabernacle, God's holy mountain, is where he is said to dwell among his people. So, in other words, you could say that the tabernacle, the temple, functioned like God's house. But we know God is infinite. You know, he's not contained by a tent or a temple. But that is the place where he was said to dwell among his people. So it's like God's house. 
And you don't get to just waltz into God's house, do you? It's his house. And he gets to determine who is a guest in his house. And God is very particular about who he allows to dwell with him in his house. And that particularity is due to God's what? Holiness, right? His holiness. Not everyone gets to go to heaven. Turn back with me to Psalm 5, where God, or or we find this out about God. Psalm 5, verse 4. David says of God, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. No evil sojourns with you. And that's the same word that we found in that first question. Who may sojourn in your tent? Here we see no evil may sojourn with God in his tent. No evil dwells with you. Verse 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. So, hence the question, who may dwell in God's presence? That's the question. That's the most important question that we could possibly ask. And back in Psalm 15, in verses 2 through 5, David records the answer to that question. Who may dwell with God on his holy hill? And the answer, to sum it up, is whoever is like Yahweh, whoever is like the Lord, that is who can dwell with the Lord. Whoever is free from evil, whoever acts the way he acts, that one can dwell with him. And in verses 2 through 5, David gives us that answer in a series of four triplets. There's 12 qualifiers that David records for us for who may dwell in God's presence. And he gives them in in four sets of three. The the first set of three is stated positively. This This person must be like this. The second set of three are stated negatively. This person must not be like this. The third set of three are stated positively again. And the fourth set of three are stated negatively again. And we're just going to work through each of these four sets of three, which describe for us who may dwell with God in his presence. And the first set of three we encounter in verse two. And to sum up these three qualifiers, we find that that the ones who may dwell with God are those acting with righteous sincerity. Those acting with righteous sincerity. Look at verse 2. Beginning to answer his question, who may dwell on your holy hill? Verse 2. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. That's who may dwell with God. First, he's got to be someone or she's got to be someone who walks with integrity. And that... That word integrity, the Hebrew word, carries the idea of completeness. You know, nothing lacking. Think of the structural integrity of a deep-sea submersible. You know, we we all saw the headlines about the Titan sub that went down, and it imploded, sadly, tragically. And why did it implode? Because the hull did not have complete structural integrity, right? Right? If there's one weak spot, the weight of all that water pressing down on that sub, all that pressure is going to find that weak spot, and it's just going to implode. Well, to walk with integrity means to live your life in such a way that there are no weak areas. There are no vulnerable parts in your character that have been eroded by sin. If there is a part of your character that has been eroded by sin... How do you think your character is going to hold up under the infinite weight of the judgment of God? You're going to implode, aren't you? So the one who would dwell with God in the blistering light of his holiness must be someone who walks with that perfection, that completeness, that integrity. Second, the one who would dwell with God is someone who works righteousness. Works righteousness. This, this phrase is a 
a description of one who does what is right. All of their works are in perfect conformity to who God is and what he requires regarding our motives, our thoughts, our words, and our actions. Third, the one who would dwell with God is one who speaks truth in his heart. He speaks truth in his heart. He not only says the right things outwardly with his mouth, but he thinks the right things in his heart. He has the right attitudes in his heart that match what he's saying. And this is the opposite. If you think back to to when we went through Psalm 14, the one who speaks truth in his heart is the opposite of who? The fool, right? Because what does the fool say in his heart? What did that say back in uh, Psalm 14, verse 1? What does the fool say in his heart? There is no God. That's not true, right? The fool does not speak truth in his heart. And look back at Psalm 12, verse 2. They, the wicked, speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a what kind of heart? A double heart they speak. So they say one thing, but in their heart they're thinking something else. That is not the type of person that can dwell with God. The one who dwells with God must speak truth, not just outwardly, but in his heart. He cannot be a hypocrite. In Harper Lee's novel, To Kill a Mockingbird, the the voice with which that novel is written is, is of the daughter named Scout. And her dad is Atticus Finch. So it's, the book is written from her perspective, this, this young girl named Scout. And in that novel, there's a conversation that takes place between Scout and her neighbor, Miss Maudie. And in this conversation, Miss Maudie begins wondering out loud about what kind of terrible secret things take place behind closed doors that no one knows about. You know, everybody puts on a face when they're walking on the sidewalk, but you don't know what's going on inside the house. And Scout interprets this as kind of like a slight against her dad. And so she feels the necessity to defend her father, and this is what she says. Atticus, she she called her dad by his name, she said, Atticus, don't ever do anything to Jem and me in the house that he don't do in the yard. That's what she said. Miss Maudie responded, saying, Gracious child, I was raveling a thread, wasn't even thinking about your father. But now that I am, I'll say this, Atticus Finch is the same in his house as he is on the public streets. That's what it is to speak truth in your heart. The one who may dwell with God is the same in the secret depths of his heart as he is out in the public for all the world to see. That's the one who may dwell with God on his holy hill. This brings us to that second set of three qualifiers. And to sum up this second set, we see that those who may dwell with God are those who avoid ruinous speech. Those who avoid ruinous speech. Look at verse 3. He does not slander with his tongue nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. First, the one who would dwell with God does not slander with his tongue. The commentator Alan Ross said this about that phrase, does not slander with his tongue. Quote, slandering refers to spreading damaging gossip that is usually untrue or unverified. It will destroy or bring great harm to the person slandered, unquote. Turn with me to Proverbs 22. I want you to see what is said there. Proverbs 22, verse 1. Proverbs 22, verse 1. It says, A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. According to that verse, what's more valuable, your name or your reputation or wealth? Which is more valuable? 
a good name, right? A good reputation. So when you slander someone, what are you doing? You are taking a sledgehammer to that person's most precious possession. It's like walking up to a, a, a priceless vase and just destroying it, obliterating it. That's what we do when we slander someone. We are, we are taking a hammer to that which is their most precious possession. And as fallen people, we are often far too willing to assassinate someone's character, often with information that's not even true. And even more often with information that we haven't even taken the time to check out whether or not it's true. And even if it is true, do we happen to obey Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, before running our mouth to whoever will listen? What does that verse say? If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. You don't run around and crush his reputation. That's not what you do. That's not the one who dwells with God, what that one does. Verse 3, the second thing the one who dwells with God does not do, says, nor does evil to his neighbor or his fellow. To do evil is simply to do the opposite of what is good, right? The one who dwells with God does not do anything that will bring harm or wickedness into the lives of those around him. Third, the one who would dwell with God is someone who does not take up a reproach against his friend. The word translated friend in my translation simply means near one. If it, it can refer not just to your friend, but to a blood relative. It can refer to someone who's simply close in proximity to you. Could be a friend, could be a relative, could be a coworker, could be a neighbor, anyone who's near to you in any way. The one who dwells with God does not take up a reproach against such a one. A reproach, in this context, is a word that's intended to bring shame upon someone. It's a word intended to disgrace someone or to taunt someone. And to take up a reproach against someone is to actively pick up those words that are doing those things, shaming, taunting, um, insulting. It is to take up those words, whether you thought those words up yourself or somebody else did and you just adopt those words. To take up a reproach against someone is to take those words and use it as a weapon against that person. Just to apply this to our lives as believers, we need to hold one another accountable in how we use our speech, right? Augustine was a, a Christian man who lived in the, the late 4th to early 5th centuries. And lately I've been slowly reading a biography about him written by Peter Brown. And in that biography, Brown uh, records this about a phrase that Augustine had inscribed on his dinner table where he would eat with friends who would come and visit. There was a phrase Augustine wrote there, and this is what Brown's biography says. Quote, he, Augustine, wrote the following verses on the table, warning against the common plague of gossip. And this is what he wrote. Whoever thinks that he is able to nibble at the life of absent friends, must know that he's unworthy of this table. Let me read that again. Whoever thinks that he is able to nibble at the life of absent friends must know that he's unworthy of this table. He goes on to say, once when some intimate friends of his, fellow bishops, were forgetful enough of these verses as to gossip, Augustine upbraided them or rebuked them so sternly that he lost his temper and said that either they should rub these verses off the table or that he would get up and go to his room in the middle of the meal, unquote. Think about it. If a gossiper was unworthy to eat at Augustine's table, how much less worthy is he to eat at God's table in his house? In verse 4, we come to the third set of three qualifiers of the one who would dwell with God. And to sum up those three, it is those acting with resolute sympathy. And by that I mean 
They are for the one God is for. They are against the one God is against. They are sympathizers of God. They are sympathizers of, of whoever God is for, and they are against whoever God is against. And they're resolute in that. They don't change in that. Those are the ones who may dwell with God. Look at verse 4, the, uh, the first three phrases in there. In whose eyes a reprobate, or a vile person, a, a rejected person, is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt. We'll take the first two together. The one who dwells with God must be one whose sympathies lie with whoever God's sympathies lie. He must despise the ones God despises, and he must honor the ones God honors. A reprobate, as I said, is someone whom God has rejected. That's what it means to be a reprobate, to be rejected by God. Now, what does it mean for us to despise a reprobate? Well, it does not mean to have mean and nasty feelings toward that person. That's not what despise means there. So what does it mean? Well, I want us to jump to a few passages in which we see the word despise, same word that's used here, contrasted with certain things so that we can understand what it means to despise because we don't want to get that wrong, right? So let's go back to 1 Samuel 2, verse 30. 1 Samuel 2, verse 30. Here God is rebuking Eli who was not reigning in his sons. His sons were reprobates. They were rejected by God. And Eli was not despising them. He was rather honoring them. He was catering to them at the expense of God. 1 Samuel 2, verse 30. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house, Eli, and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. So here, to despise is contrasted with what? To honor, right? So to despise is to not honor. Or in, in the words that God uses, it is to lightly esteem, right? To not, not uh, attribute much weight to this person. Let's go over to Proverbs 14. And verse 2. Proverbs 14, verse 2. He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. Here, despises is contrasted with what? Fearing the Lord, right? So to despise is to not fear, right? To not fear someone. Next, uh, go to Proverbs 19. We get another contrast here. Proverbs 19, verse 16 He who keeps the commandment, and likely means God's commandment, he who keeps the commandment keeps his soul. But he who is careless of conduct, or he who despises, that's the word, despises conduct will die. Here, to despise is contrasted with keeping the commandment, right? So if we kind of string all that together, to despise a reprobate is to lightly esteem him by not honoring him, not fearing him, and not obeying him when doing so would put you at odds with God. In other words, if a reprobate is telling you to do one thing and God is saying, no, I want you to do this, to despise the reprobate is to say, I'm going to honor and fear and keep the commandment of God rather than you here. So that's what it means to despise a reprobate. Right? You, you value God and what he says more than, than the one rejected by him. The second quality of the one who would dwell with God is that he honors 
those who fear the Lord. So he despises the reprobate, but he honors the God-fearer. Now, this seems obvious. Well, yeah, of course I should, I should reject the one God has rejected. I should honor the one who fears God. But in the world in which we live, there is a great temptation to flip that around. There's a great temptation to honor the one God has rejected and to reject the ones who fear God, isn't there? And why is that? Well, it's because our world and our culture so in our face exalts the one who, who is rejected by God and mocks the ones who fear God. And as fallen people who tend to want to please our neighbors and our friends and our family, when we see them doing that, we tend to want to join in so that we don't stick out like a sore thumb. So if, if you have an unbelieving friend who badmouths a believer, what do you do? Do you defend that believer? Do you defend that one who fears God? Or do you join in on the mocking? The one who may dwell with God does not join in. Back in Psalm 15, verse 4, the third qualifier that we're looking at is this. The one who may dwell with God swears to his own hurt. He swears to his own hurt. This person keeps his word even when it costs him. Inconvenience is not enough to stop him from following through on what he said he was going to do. John Calvin, in commenting on this verse, said that, quote, David enjoins them, that is, David calls his readers to show a greater regard to their promises than to their own personal interests, unquote. In other words, David is saying, when you say you're going to do something, you need to value the, that, that commitment you made more than your own convenience. So if you commit to do something and then you discover, wow, this is going to hurt for me to actually do this, your pain should not matter as much to you as the fact that you committed to doing this. He swears to his own hurt. That is the one who may dwell with God. That brings us to the last, the fourth set of three qualifiers of the one who may dwell with God. And the ones who may dwell with God here can be said, can be summed up to be those who avoid rotten silver. Or I was trying to come up with something that matched the beginning letters of what I had done before. In other words, it's those who avoid ill-gotten gain. You know, those who avoid filthy lucre, to use the King James terminology. Those who avoid rotten silver. Look at the end of verse 4, heading into verse 5. This one who may dwell with God is one who, the end of verse 4, does not change. Verse 5, he does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. First, he does not change. This is very closely connected to the previous qualifier. He swears to his own hurt, right? The one who may dwell with God does not change. He does what he says even if it's going to hurt him. He does not change. You don't have to wonder how this person is going to react when times get tough. You don't have to worry about whether or not somebody can corrupt this person. You don't have to wonder if he's going to be today who he was yesterday. No, he does not change. Who he was yesterday is who he is today, and it's who he's going to be tomorrow, and that is one who honors God, who walks with integrity. He does not change. And this quality of not changing goes hand in hand with the next two qualifiers. Because what so often does seem to change people? The love of money, right? You have a friend, he gets rich, and all of a sudden, he doesn't really want to hang out with you anymore. But the one who dwells with God does not change. He does not change. Secondly, verse 5, what does the one who may dwell with God not do? He does not put out his money at interest. He's not a loan shark, right? David is not saying here that all loans that charge interest are bad. 
What he's saying, what he has in mind, is the kind of loan that takes advantage of the needy. He has in mind the kind of person who seeks to make a profit off of the misery of the poor. Such a person is not really interested in helping that person get ahead in life. All he's interested in is, how can I use that person's misfortune to benefit myself? I want to shift that person's indebtedness to me so that I can profit off of his poverty. The one who dwells with God is not such a person. Third, the one who can dwell with God is one who does not take a bribe against the innocent. He's he's not someone who can be bought. There's no price that you can set which would cause him to compromise his integrity, especially if you're trying to buy him off to hurt the innocent one. A horrific example of this that comes to mind is doctors who perform abortions. They take money from men and women who don't want the burden of caring for a child, and they murder the child for profit. They murder the innocent to make a buck. And obviously, there's far less grisly ways that we can take a bribe against the innocent, but I think you get the point. So that these are the 12 qualifiers of the one who may dwell with God in his tent on his holy mountain. That brings us to the promise. So we've had the question, that important question. We've had the answer, and now there's a promise given at the end of this psalm. Look at the end of verse 5. He who does these things, these 12 things, these four sets of three qualifiers, he who does these things will never be shaken. In other words, his spot in God's tent His position in God's holy mountain will never be shaken. He doesn't have to worry about about getting kicked out of God's presence. He will never be shaken, the one who does these things. Now, if you remember Psalm 14, this psalm, this question, this answer, this promise poses a big problem for us. Because what did we learn in Psalm 14? Remember, Verse 2 of Psalm 14, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek for God. And what does God find in verse 3? They have all, all the sons of men have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So according to Psalm 14, no one meets the qualifications of Psalm 15. No one qualifies to live with God in his heaven forever. Not one of us. So how can we receive this promise at the end of verse 5? We can't. In and of ourselves, we cannot enter into the enjoyment of this promise. So what do we do? Well, because of this, uh, this problem, we're tempted to respond in a couple of different ways. And Psalm 15 demands a response. It demands that you respond some way, somehow. And there are two wrong ways to respond, and there are two right ways to respond. We're first going to look at the two wrong ways to respond to this psalm. The first wrong way to respond to this psalm is to respond with lawfulness. Lawfulness. The first wrong way to respond to this psalm and this promise is to hear it and conclude, well, I guess I just need to try harder if I'm going to escape hell and get to heaven. If I'm good enough, God will let me get into his home. He'll accept me as a guest. That's a wrong conclusion. That is a fool's errand because you cannot be good enough to earn a spot into God's heavenly home. If you think you can, what are you doing? You are You are underestimating your own sinfulness, and you are infinitely underestimating God's holiness, aren't you? You and I cannot meet this standard. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of Psalm 15. No one qualifies to live with God in his heaven forever. No one, except for one person. And who is that? Jesus Christ, right? 
Let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter 2 and verse 21, Peter begins uh, speaking of Jesus as our example. And listen to how he describes Jesus in verse 22. So First Peter chapter 2, verse 22. This Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. The Apostle Peter, quoting from the prophet Isaiah, says that Jesus committed no sin. And then he goes on to say, even when he was being persecuted, his integrity did not break. He kept trusting God perfectly. When you read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which record the life of Jesus for us in great detail, you discover that of all the people who have ever lived, only Jesus met each of those 12 qualifiers of Psalm 14, right? Only Jesus walked with integrity. Only he worked righteousness. Only he spoke truth in his heart. Only he did not slander with his tongue did no evil to his neighbor, never took up an unjust reproach against those near him. Only Jesus perfectly despised the reprobate. Only he perfectly honored the God-fearer. Only he perfectly followed through on everything he ever said. Only Jesus never, ever changed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Only Jesus never, ever put out his money at interest. Only he never, ever took a bribe against the innocent. Jesus, as the Holy Son of God, is the only one who is ever qualified to abide in God's tent, to dwell on God's holy mountain. And yet, what does Peter go on to say in chapter 2? Verse 24, And he himself bore our sins, in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Here we see that this one who alone qualified to dwell with God allowed himself to be nailed to a wooden cross where he bore the wrath of God in paying for our sins. And Jesus did that so that we, straying sheep, could return to God and dwell with him. So if you want to escape from the wrath of God, if you want to be able to lay hold of this promise at the end of Psalm 15 and dwell in his holy mountain, the answer is not, let me try harder and try to get there. The answer is, let me run to Christ. The only one who qualified to dwell with God and the only one who's done the work necessary to qualify me to dwell with God. This psalm drives you to that. So that's the first wrong way to respond to Psalm 15, to respond with lawfulness. The second wrong way to respond to this psalm is to respond with lawlessness. Let me explain what I mean. The, the, the second wrong way to respond to this psalm is to read it and say, well, Jesus did that for me, so I don't need to pay attention to this psalm. I can just take my scissors and cut it out of the Bible. I don't need to worry about it. It has no relevance to my day-to-day life. Even if I live my life habitually doing the exact opposite of what this psalm says, I don't need to worry about it. Jesus did it for me. I prayed for him to save me. I got my fire insurance. I'm good. I don't need to worry about what Psalm 15 says. I can live any way I want. Well, the Bible does not give us any room for such an attitude. To have that kind of attitude is to reveal that I don't understand the grace of God at all. 
is to reveal that I really haven't repented of my sins. I really have not trusted in Jesus to save me from my sins, right? The Bible teaches that when someone receives Christ as Savior, Jesus delivers that person from their slavery to sin. And he places his Holy Spirit inside of them. And he begins to transform them, making them more and more like himself. When God saves you, he begins to change you so that your character becomes more and more in line with what we read in Psalm 15. Now, you don't ever reach perfection this side of heaven. You don't ever get there, but the direction of your life changes. Your salvation never, ever begins to depend on your good works. It always depends on Jesus' good work. But once you're saved, Jesus comes into your life and he begins to help you to live like he lived. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. The Apostle John assumes this change that takes place in the life of a true believer. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, How do I know that I've truly received salvation from God? Chapter 2, verse 3, By this we know, that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. If I'm a believer... My life is going to change. No, I don't have to become perfect in order to get saved. I'm saved because Jesus was perfect for me. But now that I have been saved by the perfect righteousness of Jesus, he begins to help me to live like him for his glory. So lawlessness is a wrong way to respond to this psalm. If I read this psalm and I live lawlessly, the Bible says you don't know Christ at all. You haven't been saved by him at all. So if those are the two wrong ways to respond to this promise, what's the right way to respond to Psalm 15? Well, there are two right ways to respond to Psalm 15. And the first right way is to read this psalm and acknowledge my spiritual poverty. To acknowledge that I have no resources in and of myself to climb this ladder to get to where God is and to have him accept me. It's to read this psalm and say, wow, I'm not going to make it. I need Jesus. Only he did what was required to earn this for me. Lord, save me. Make me a guest in God's house. Only you can do it. That's what we saw in 1 Peter 2. Jesus has done it for us. So I should read this psalm and fall to my knees and say, I have no hope in myself. I locate all of my hope in Jesus alone. That's the first right way to respond to Psalm 15. The second right way that goes along with that, that we've already hinted at, is that when we read Psalm 15, we should use it not to figure out how to earn my own salvation. No, that's wrong. I should use it instead to begin to assess my spiritual growth. If I've truly come to Christ for salvation, the Bible tells me he's going to begin slowly, bit by bit, day by day, change me, and my life should begin more and more to resemble what I see in Psalm 15. So I should read this psalm and I should ask myself, is my life beginning to resemble what is said here? If I'm still living like the same old fool I've always been, I need to reevaluate whether or not I truly have come to Jesus for salvation. On the other hand, if I'm beginning to, to see glimmers of these qualities take root in my life and begin to, uh, to see my life reverse direction, I can know that that change is only because of the saving work God has already accomplished and because of the sanctifying work that he is doing 
in me to make me more like my Savior. I think we'll stop there. If you want to write this passage down, uh, write down 1 Peter 1, verses 5 through 11. Or actually, excuse me, 2 Peter 1. Write down 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11. Because there Peter draws on this psalm. And he gives a list. He gives his own list. And he's writing to believers. He's writing to people who are already resting in Christ, have already been saved by Christ. And he's saying, in your faith supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence supply. And he goes on and on like that. And he says, those who practice such things will never stumble. He's repeating the promise made at the end of Psalm 15. Those who practice such things will never stumble. So go ahead and read that, just to back up what I said, said here. So let's pray. Lord, uh, Psalm 15 uh, is definitely a, a big hunk of meat to chew on. And Lord, I know that uh, we went through a lot in working through that psalm. But I pray that your spirit would, would take uh, your word and, and inscribe it upon our hearts. Lord, help us to respond rightly to this psalm. Help us to abandon all efforts to earn salvation and to fling ourselves totally at your mercy to, to plead the name of Jesus because he alone met the bar that Psalm 15 set. He alone earned righteousness. He alone was able to achieve that which qualified him to abide in your tent forever. And he alone went to the cross to pay for my sins so that through faith in him, his perfect righteousness would be credited to me. It's only through him that I can boldly approach the throne of grace and expect to be with you in your, in your heaven forever. And at the same time, your word gives us the glorious promise that once you have saved us, once you have made a place for us in your kingdom, you begin to change us. You begin to make us more like our Savior so that our lives begin to, to conform to what we actually read in Psalm 15. So help us, Lord, in using this psalm rightly, not wrongly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.